0: This episode has been brought to you by Always Discreet. Head to alwaysdiscreet.com.au to learn more about bladder leak tips, management, and incredible bladder leak protection. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Laurie Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I am here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome back to the Pelvic Health Podcast and welcome to those joining us for the first time. I hope everyone has stayed safe over the holiday season, put on their masks, stayed at home when they could, were able to be with loved ones, whether that's virtually or in person. It is finally 2021. And I know it's not a switch, um, but the end of 2020 at least gives me hope that maybe this year will be better, or maybe my perspective on what's important will be um, a little bit better. Either way, to ring in this new year, we have a fantastic episode today talking about the menstrual cycle and how sex hormones may affect exercise performance in the general population and not elite athletes, which I was really excited about. I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Associate Professor Dr. Kirsty Elliott Sale. We recorded this back in November. I'm a little bit slow, but we got there. And I knew this would be the perfect episode to start this year off. Dr. Elliot Sales is the head of the Musculoskeletal Physiology Research Group at Nottingham Trent University in England and lectures in the areas of exercise physiology, particularly in female physiology, endocrinology, performance and health. She has more than 20 years of experience working with females, elite female athletes and maternal populations and has expertise in regards to the design and implementation of exercise-based interventions since the completion of her phd which examined the effects of female reproductive hormones on muscle strength her research has concentrated on various aspects of health and athletic performance in female populations so today we're talking about stages of the menstrual cycle and she simplifies it so well so that we understand and she also made me realize why it gets confusing, because people are um, talking about different stages and phases. Anyway, she explains it so well. We talk about um, if hormonal changes influence athletic performance, whether the research supports females training according to their menstrual cycle, and this was very different than I expected. And she touches on how oral contraceptives change the picture. Now, she recently recorded a brilliant podcast on this topic as well with BJSM Podcast. So I'll put the links in there. Don't miss it. It's such a good compliment to this one. I will put her Twitter handle um, in the show notes. And the um, main paper that we're talking about today, the systematic review and meta-analysis on this subject, is open access as well as her other papers. So I'm going to include the links in the show notes so that you can actually have access to those papers. Um, she is just absolutely brilliant so I know that you guys will enjoy this episode and I um, look forward to playing for the rest of this year. Take care everyone. So how did you get into this area of menstrual cycle and exercise performance?
1: So I, I accidentally fell into this area um, and so the story sort of goes that I, I did my um, undergraduate degree um, at Liverpool Demos, uh, um, that was my university, and I really, I really enjoyed it so much and I particularly loved in the final year being able to conduct my own piece of research, um, and the research would be the only one study I've ever completed on males. <laughs> so in my undergraduate degree I, I hadn't yet discovered that a female physiology um, Yes, yeah, so I did my degree. And then I was thinking about what I should do next. Should I do a master's? Um, PhD wasn't really on my radar. And then in my university, I was really fortunate that they advertised several PhD positions. And I thought, I'm just going to be cheating and go for one. And it was very open ended. And we were invited to make our own proposal on any aspect. F- of, you know, exercise physiology that we wanted to. Um, So again, I can't lie, (laughs) I still wasn't there for female physiology. So I wrote something about thermoregulation, never completed a study since in thermoregulation. Um, But yeah, I made this proposal to do a PhD in in thermoreg. Um, It was good enough to get me an interview. At the interview and yep i was quickly told look lovely proposal nice writing style good critical thinking however that's not an offer and i was like okay and at that point they mentioned that that they just had a recently completed phd student and so i I bet you know you might know or your listeners might know of the name judy greaves and so judy's published again quite a bit in female physiology and so yes so judy had not long finished her phd and the university and had really sort of liked this area and they they saw it as a really sort of key and valuable area. So they wanted to extend the work for, you know, into another PhD program with Julie as a, as a supervisor, which was fantastic. And um, So yes, yeah, so they offered me that PhD. So cue me quickly sort of scrabbling around trying to find, you know, some background information so I could get up to speed really quickly. And um, so although I fell into it, I think where the story really changes is that, you know, within three months of starting that PhD, I was, you know, into that area. Once I started to read about it, I was like, Wow, this is a really interesting aspect, you know, the so menstrual cycles or is This is interesting, you know, the hormonal profiles are so different and they change over time and between people and amongst people and and yeah. So I was I was hooked, and then of course you you start reading some of the literature, and there were some great papers around. So this was, you know, okay, I'll, I'll admit it, it was sort of the mid nineties, mid late nineties. So there were lots of great papers and really great researchers at that time. So it felt like a really good time to join that field and. Um, then fast forward twenty something years, and I've never left. And um, all of my studies now, <laughs> apart from when I am a co-supervisor on a PhD student, but all of my studies have been in females. So, although I accidentally fell into it, it has become sort of my research one true love.
0: <laughs> oh, so you have been studying the menstrual cycle for over twenty years? Yeah, should I admit to that? <laughs> no, oh, this is this is so good because again, like we haven't really talked about the menstrual cycle at all in the podcast and not because I don't think it's important. Um, it just, I just don't even know why it hasn't come. Like, again, we've touched on it a little bit with Jackie's podcast, but I went, you know what, we really need to dig a little bit deeper and especially with regards to sport and exercise performance, but then also with contraceptive pills. So, um, you've been doing this for 20 years is it, like, have you found that there's more research that has been looking into this? Because I still feel like from a clinical point of view, we still don't have a lot of information. I still don't see people, um, and maybe that's just um, the place that I'm at, but I don't see a lot of coaches or trainers taking account into someone's menstrual cycle on how they plan to train athletes or even recreationally. Like, Are we really far behind or what's going on? <laughs>
1: I think you've hit it upon a, a you know a few good good points there. So in terms of you know when when I started in that sort of late nineties and um, space, there were some you know really nice papers that came out then that really sort of set the scene. So you know it, it definitely was a, a sort of a, a hot topic then. But to be really honest. Seemed to be then a bit of a, a gap for about ten years. Um, you know, the the, the, odd, the occasional paper came out, um, but it sort of seemed to, in a way, go go out of fashion. And for a while there, I sort of thought, gosh, you know, we're down to a handful, which, you know, wasn't true. But it just felt how it felt. It felt like it wasn't, you know, a, a priority area of research. And, and certainly in that time, something like, you know, sports nutrition just flew in in, in that sort of time scale. So, you know, I think, as a, a you know, in, in terms of sports science research, there were other priorities. But then I would say in the last five years in particular, there's just been this, you know, Boom in sort of female-based uh, research again, which is fantastic, and it's for you know a number of reasons. Um, you know, uh, the increased participation. I know that certainly when the next Olympic happens, if when the next Olympic happens, then that will be the the first games where there are as many medals available for um, you know sports women as they are for sportsmen. So you can see you know more parity in, in terms of sport at the elite level. Um, but yeah, certainly the, the appetite is is there now in, in the last five five or so years, I see more researchers, you know, flooding into this area. Um, we want answers to our questions, you know, we, we are certainly behind in, in many respects. So what do I mean by that? I think that, you know, in sports science, for example, a lot of the information we have is derived from male athletes and, you know. I'm not saying that as a negative. I think you know we have to we had to start somewhere, and in terms of research design, um, I think you know using male athletes it certainly, um, I guess you know reduces some of the complexities when you're looking at menstrual cycle phase, etc., etc. So it seemed like a good place to start with males. We learned a lot, and so we were able to advance our knowledge of sport science, sport and exercise science and sport and exercise medicine and, and so on um, but now you know, is a time to look at you know, some data derived from female athletes so I don't think that we need to start over and do every study again, I think a lot of what we know is applicable to both sexes but I think we need to be more nuanced in our approach now so for example if a particular outcome aspect of physiology or performance is affected by menstrual cycle phase then we should investigate that understand it so we can make nuanced you know sort of tweaks and adjustments in our practice such that you know every sportswoman can on any given day regardless of which day of her cycle it is go out and perform to her absolute best so I think you know in, in terms of I guess historically certainly over my 20 years career career I've seen you know it sort of you know be an area of interest sort of weighing a little bit but I think it, it's certainly come back with a bang recently um, and it is a priority I know it's a priority in, in many countries now and I think the time is right to really focus on, on sort of female athletes and to move this area forward. So we are in in some respects a little behind, certainly behind in the quantity of information we have. And um, we also have some difficulties and issues with the quality of research so far, because as I sort of just mentioned briefly, that you know when you're sort of conducting studies on something like menstrual cycle phase you have to do like a lot of repeated measures and you have to make sure you're in the phase that you think you are and that requires you know some forward planning it requires you know retrospective blood samples and so on so you know that to research in this area requires you to have you know really good working knowledge of the hormones how to find a phase how to confirm it and and how to sort of conduct studies like that so I think you know that's really exciting i think we're we're moving forward in the right way and i think you know we just need to make sure that we're in our rush to get the answers that we that we do it correctly
0: in essence it makes research much easier when you don't have to consider all of those factors (laughs) hence all of the research Yeah, in males. And cheaper, and cheaper. And cheaper. So if we take kind of a step back and go straight back to basics and talk about the stages of the menstrual cycle, because um, I know what they are, but I always get them mixed up, and it's very confusing. Um, And so if you can kind of simplify it and give us kind of, because, you know, sometimes you read about four stages, but then it's three stages. And so (laughs) you can kind of bring us back to bases about that.
1: Of course. And and I guess before I, I go into sort of the explanation, I think that's, you know, what you've hit upon there is, you know, what do we call the phases? How many phases are there? How do we determine them? That's often, again, what limits our interpretation of existing research, because actually as researchers, we're calling the phases something different between, you know, studies. We're not in agreement. Some of us, you know, research two phases, some do five phases. So it's all just so... So I guess mixed up, so it would be great to to get some clarity here. So what I'm going to describe to you, I'm going to describe it first without using any sort of phase names, because I think that's important. Let's just understand the hormonal profile, and and then I'll go back to that idea of terminology. So in order to conduct, I guess, a menstrual cycle phase study or to investigate the effects of the menstrual cycle on a particular outcome, first you have to find a a eumenorrheic female. So that's eumenorrhea is that term that we use for those with a, I guess, um, not normal, but a fully functional uh, menstrual cycle. And there are a number of ways, a number of criteria that they, they have to reach. And, and I'll, I'll come back to that in, in a moment. So if you think, um, if you're with a textbook and you look this up, you usually describe a menstrual cycle as being 28 days long now that's just a, an idealized number and we use that so that when we're talking like this we have a sort of standardized time frame but just to point out really early on this in term in, in order to be eumenorrheic one of the criteria is uh, is that you can have a cycle anywhere between 21 and 35 days okay so as long as your cycle is, is in that window then that's one of the criteria for you know having a, a sort of a healthy menstrual cycle so of course that in, you know, increases the variability, right? So one athlete should have a cycle of 24 days, the next one 31 days. And so a lot of between athlete variation and then to make things even more complicated, you can have within athlete variation. So her cycle to be 25 days um, and then followed by a 27 day, followed by a 32 day. So a lot of variation. So so that's the, the thing up front. So I'm going to talk about this idealized 28 day cycle so that we can just get to grips with the hormonal profile. So day one of the menstrual cycle, that's the first day of menstruation, um, or we can just call that, that's the day the athlete gets her period. Um, so that's something obviously that's very evident to the athlete, you know, so it's quite an obvious sort of physical cue. So day one is the first day of menstrual bleeding, um, and on day one, and the, let's look let's at oestrogen first, so the two hormones, oestrogen, and progesterone, I'll, I'll describe oestrogen first. So day one of the cycle, oestrogen levels are low. So as they move through the cycle, so as it gets sort of more towards the middle, middle of the cycle, so around, let's say, day 10, 11, 12, you have a big peak in estrogen, okay? So it peaks quite quickly and then it drops off very quickly as well. So that's, Just, I would say, slightly, so if you picture in your mind a scale of 1 to 28, 14 would be the middle, so just to the left, okay, of the 14 days, that's when you get that peak in estrogen. This is such a visual thing, so I'm trying to describe it
0: well with words. So I will have add a, a little picture so everyone can see afterwards. <laughs> Brilliant. So,
1: so you have this sort of just, I say slightly before mid-cycle peak in estrogen, it drops off quite rapidly. And then as you move into the second half of the cycle, you have a, a secondary peak, although that secondary peak is, is not quite as high as the first peak. So it peaks then in the sort of second half of the cycle and then of course drops off so that by the time you restart the next cycle at day one, it's, it's low again. So in terms of estrogen, I would sort of describe that as being low then high and then medium okay so that's the sort of three distinct or significantly different sort of hormonal profiles in terms of estrogen so in terms of progesterone again on day one the first day of menstrual bleeding progesterone levels are low so the same as estrogen they stay low for the whole first half of the cycle so you don't get that sort of equivalent peak so while you have that peak in estrogen progesterone is still low And then once you go past that sort of mid-cycle, day 14, it begins to rise and to peak. It peaks then in that second half and then drops off rapidly again. So it's low by the start of the next cycle. So really, in terms of progesterone, if we're thinking about it to match those sort of three phases or three profiles of estrogen, it's low, low, and then high. Okay. So they're really the the times in the cycle when you can expect significantly different hormonal profiles. So I said to you that there are, you know, a couple of, uh, a few different criteria in order to establish humanorrhea. So one is you have to be between 21 and 35 days. So that's the first one in terms of cycle length. The second one is, is that you have to ovulate. Okay. So what is ovulation? So that occurs in the middle of this sort of idealized 28-day cycle. So on day 14, you get a spike, a peak in luteinizing hormone, which triggers ovulation. Okay, and that's uh, detectable using a urinary um, detection kit. So this is basically a, a kit that an athlete would, would urinate on. Uh, when she's ovulating, it gives her a positive result. And so you have to ovulate in order to be uh, deemed humanorrheic. And the reason why you have to ovulate very briefly is that, of course, it sort of helps drive the hormonal profiles in the second half of, of the cycle. So so that's really quite important. And then I'd say the third criteria of being being eumenorrheaic is that you get that sort of in that sort of second phase between days 14 and 28. So that's that latter half of the menstrual cycle, you need to have that um peak in progesterone. So without that, that's called luteal phase deficiency. So getting that sort of peak of progesterone between days 14 and 28, that's super important. So those three things are some of the criteria. I think the main criteria that there are others, but they're the main sort of things that you have to have. And with those, then you um Again, when, if you were conducting a research study, for example, um, if you made a, a particular measurement, so if you tested muscle strength or joint laxity or ligament laxity or anything like that, um, if you took a blood sample on the day that you, you made your measurement, then you can retrospectively confirm that you had the right phase by looking at the hormone concentration. So hopefully that's given a sort of a quick and brief overview of, I guess, the hormonal profile of the menstrual cycle. But if you have take a look at the, the sort of picture, um, that's super helpful. I'll end just by saying one thing, is that I've described a hormonal profile to you, and I said, you know, there's really three, I guess, milestones, or three significantly different sort of concentrations you can see across that one cycle. Um, we talked about what do we call these in terms of phases. So in its most simplistic terms, day one to 14 is known as the follicular phase, and then day 14 to 28 is known as the repeal phase. So that's the most simplistic, um, I guess, breakdown I can give you but then of course um, as you said you read studies where they have many other phases not just two and of course I've sort of verbally described three to you so we can break it down further during um, sort of menstruation that period that that, that point of, of bleeding and that's usually termed the early follicular phase then the late follicular phase would be that sort of very high concentration of estrogens that I described that happens just sort of slightly if you're looking at the diagram to the left of the middle of the cycle So that would be the the late follicular phase. And then if you look at that sort of um, peak in estrogen and progesterone in that latter part, that's called the midluteal phase. And then lastly, in the middle, I'm going forward and back all of the time. Laurie's laughing because she can see my hands moving around. <laughs> it's a visual thing. But of course, in that uh, the sort of middle of the cycle, when you have that peak in leucinizing hormones, that's called the ovulatory phase. So now you can see we've gone from two to how many? Five, early follicular, late follicular, ovulatory, oh, uh, 4 middle. And um, but of course you could further split the luteal phase into early luteal, mid-luteal and late luteal. So you can have anywhere between two and five or six or seven different phases. Um, so I think it's just super important that maybe in research or in practice, we talk more about sort of the hormonal profile rather than getting too caught up in the name. So yeah, not confusing at all, is it?
0: <laughs> you have just explained to me why I have been confused this whole time. I don't <laughs> think I've realized that everyone was doing it differently. I thought maybe I was missing something. And it's the early and the mid and the late. And as soon as you throw all that in, and then every time you look at it, I'm like, oh, wait, this is different. And that's why I've never been able to remember it. But thinking about it as a hormonal profile is so much easier. Oh my goodness. So if we, if we talk about kind of the sex hormones within that hormonal profile, how do each of them kind of influence, um, exercise or athletic performance do we know any of that? That's a
1: big, big question. It's a really good question as well. So I think there are a number of ways to, to look at this. So I guess the first one is um, if an athlete experiences side effects as a result of these changes in hormones, then I think that's the first potential impact they can have. So what do I mean by that? Um, so for example, when an athlete is having her period, if she has really bad cramps, then you might imagine that if you're if you're suffering from cramps or headaches or nausea, that might impact upon your ability to train and perform. So I would say the first way to look at that is, is that, you know, the changes in hormones have indirect effects or symptoms or side effects, and they have the potential to, to influence an athlete it's ability or even sometimes willingness. So if they feel fatigued or demotivated, so I I think that's one way where they can have a a potential impact. The second way, and I think this is probably where um, you, you really sort of what you meant by your question is that sort of relationship. So when we look at research studies and it says the effect of menstrual cycle phase on muscle strength or on performance or on endurance performance or that sort of thing. So here in the research what we're trying to do is to establish if a particular concentration of either estrogen or progesterone has the ability to impact upon various physiological systems and then as a consequence of those changes if performance is is influenced. And I guess there are almost two answers to this question. Uh, one is that theoretically, you know, when you change these ovarian steroid hormones, um, they they have the potential to influence many physiological systems. Um, so theoretically, the answer is yes. You know, menstrual cycle uh, phase and these hormone profiles can have an effect on performance. Um the other answer is this is sort of truthful and I guess research and evidence-based answer is that we don't really know. It's such a cop-out, isn't it? Come on a podcast, tell us what you know. Oh, I, we don't know anything. Um, and actually it's As not usual. that we don't know. It's not like we don't know anything at all. So so here in this space, it relates, I guess, to a couple of things I've already mentioned. One, there's not a huge amount of um quantity. So um, that coupled with, I guess, issues with the quality of research, I guess, if I almost skip um, forward a second and give you the conclusion, and then I'll work my way backwards to how I got there. So we would say at the moment that there's insufficient, so not enough high quality and the high quality is super important. There's insufficient high quality evidence for us to give, you know, evidence-based guidelines right now to say your performance is best here or worse than there. So so that's, I guess, the, the conclusion. Let's walk back a little bit from, from, from that. So, how did we get there? Um, so, I guess one of the, the studies I've been really fortunate to be involved in recently. So, this is a group, a team, a team effort here, so myself and a you know great team of, of other researchers, including a fantastic PhD student. And um, so we've been working recently on a, a systematic review and meta-analysis um, of the effects of menstrual cycle on exercise performance. So of course that's quite a specific research question. We haven't covered things like you know the physiological responses or training responses or injury or nutrition. So just on exercise performance. So we sort of trawled back through the literature today. So we did, a, as I say, a systematic review, um, and that meant that you know we we sort of put in our, our key terms to to I guess databases to try and find anything relevant that might help us answer this question. Um, And so in the end, we included 78 studies into this particular paper. So of course, the first thing you're going to say is, oh, so there are papers. Yes, there are papers. So although it's less quantity than than data derived from male athletes, we we do have some some quantity. So we included 78 papers into this um, particular review and meta-analysis. Um, and then I guess if I go to the sort of quality um, sort of next. So we were able to uh, perform a quality assessment upon these papers. And actually, when when we did that, um, we we showed, or the, the data, the the evidence showed that the uh, majority of studies included were of sort of low quality. So if a study has um, deemed to be of low quality, then I guess our confidence in their findings is, is lower. And of course, if we have if we rate something or grade something as being high quality, then we're more confident in in the findings there. So that might be sort of quite new to people that you know, um, I guess if I were to oversimplify it, if you have something you're interested in about research, you go and you find some papers, you read the papers and you think, oh great, now I know about this. So I think an added complexity is that we really should look at the the quality of the evidence. So anyway, we we did this big search, this systematic review. um, We identified these papers. um, We looked at the quality of the evidence and then we took the data from these papers and we put them into a a meta-analysis. So we combined all of that information to try and come up with some conclusions. So I guess if you were to to read the paper, one of the key points, I'm sort of going to read it first and then I'm going to explain to you what we mean by this. So the data showed that in women, exercise performance might be reduced by a trivial amount during the early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle when compared to other phases. So I'm gonna break this down for you. Okay, so exercise performance might be reduced by a trivial amount. So what is a trivial amount? So if you think about, I think we're all familiar with small, medium, large, okay? So trivial is smaller than small, okay? So it's a very small amount, a teeny tiny amount. So we said that the data showed that exercise performance might be reduced by this smaller than small amount during the early follicular phase. Shall I remind you, the early follicular phase is when an athlete has her period, so she's bleeding, and estrogen and progesterone levels are low, okay? So here we're, I guess, by looking at the information from these studies, it's almost impossible for us to tell if the performance is reduced because of these indirect side effects I mentioned, or because the hormone concentration was this, and therefore the output is that. So that's what the, the, the data shows, that when you compare that phase to the other phases, any other time in the menstrual cycle, some athletes might have this trivial reduction in performance. So there's a second sentence that goes with this. So however, there was large between study um, variability um, and indicating that this variability um, between the studies, I'll I'll go to that first, I was going to read the whole sentence and I thought I'll I'll just break it down. So what we mean is that when we looked at the evidence um, as a whole piece, actually the studies really contradicted each other a lot so there was a lot of between study variation and when we don't have this consensus it makes i guess that sort of finding that i've just explained to you it sort of makes us think gosh some studies really show that other studies don't show that at all so a lot of variation so that led us to look at the research design and which participants were included and really everything was just so such a mixed bag in the end we said actually we think that the variability between all of these 78 studies is so big, even though that, that was our sort of statistical, our stats showed this. At this point, we said actually, we want to conclude that practically the current evidence does not warrant guidelines um, on modulating exercise during the menstrual cycle. So, I guess, gosh, it's, it's a lot of contradictions in there. So, I'm just going to summarize that super quickly. When we put in all of this information to try and conclude something, our conclusion was that in some women, and that's really important, some women are affected, not all. In some women, their exercise performance might be reduced by a very small amount when they're having their period compared to any other time of the menstrual cycle. However, this is just in some women, not in all. So it's not what we call a a really group finding. So, you know, we shouldn't apply that information to a group of women. We should use that on a more individual level. So that means that when faced with a team of athletes, we acknowledge and appreciate that some athletes might have this effect, but others might not. And then really in terms of, you know, should we go out and change our practice and start training people and only asking them to perform on certain days of dementia cycle, we're saying no right now because the quality of the evidence was, was quite low. So sorry, that's a quite a lot of information, but that sort of, and it's just one study. So this is just one paper that, you know, myself and, and a great and a great team that I was super fortunate to work with, that's what we've put out recently. Um, But of course, that, that's one aspect of, I guess, the bigger picture and we need way more systematic reviews and meta-analysis to really, understand understand what previous data is is trying to tell
0: everyone should know this by now as a physiotherapist i do not believe in telling women with urinary incontinence just to wear a pad or a liner and keep pushing through i also don't believe that they have to stop doing the exercise and activities that they love forever in order to manage it I know how important pelvic floor exercises are, I know how important modifications to risk factors are, and I know how important education is in helping to treat urinary incontinence, but I also know how extremely important promoting physical activity is. We have the highest quality evidence demonstrating that physiotherapists can greatly improve or often cure incontinence But I also know that this management takes time and for some women, while it might improve their leaking by 80%, sometimes they will still have leaking or there will be a subset of women that we can't help enough. This is why I feel incontinence pads and liners still have a place and I am honoured to be asked to partner up with Always Discreet to help break the stigma around incontinence, empower and support women to start conversations about bladder leakage, provide the best information on management and also provide options to decrease embarrassing accidents that they may continue to have. So follow the hashtag WeAlwaysGotYou which is we w-e-e join in on the conversation and as professionals continue to educate women about how we can help you just said that was one study but that was actually 70 something <laughs> well yeah we've, we we've, we've kindly borrowed
1: 78 other authors <laughs> really great work um, and you know we we've tried to do sort this of, i guess i think it, it's important that before we move forward, because I said to you that there was a real appetite right now and, you know, we really want to get answers to our questions um, and so we're moving forward very quickly. But I think actually before we go down, you know, some potential rabbit holes, we should look back at, you know, what's come before us you know, there's definitely lessons to be learned. We now understand because the papers are low quality, we we understand, okay, here are some things that we need to improve upon and so that the next, you know, round of papers that come out will be higher quality. And also by looking backwards, you know, we can maybe target, you know, if it's if it's the case that some athletes really, you know, have this small change of performance, at the, you know, during their periods, and that's where we need to maybe target some intervention studies or training response studies or that sort of thing. So I think that, you know, we mustn't discount what's come before. It's really important to, to stop and look back and then to use those lessons, you know, um, and and absolutely we're now honour-bound to fix the mistakes, any mistakes we've made in the past. And I include myself, some of my papers, of course, were in the study and, um, I think, you know, we're honour-bound with the lessons learned to, to go forward in a, in a better way so that we increase the, the quantity and quality of these studies. Um, so I, I thought that that was quite an important exercise to do, and I think we need to do it um, in, in, in order to answer other research questions because of what they are the so specific, um, and we need to do that, and that will help us move forward in the best way. So there are some lessons we can take into practice, but I think even staying here at this point, you don't need to change your practice in response to previous research. Mm-hmm. That's quite liberating too, because I know that some practitioners are worried that they were either sort of like missing a trick or so they were missing out or disadvantaging their athletes by not considering this. And you know, I think that it's important that we realise that some women are influenced and other women are not influenced at all, and that we mustn't just take a blanket approach. So we mustn't walk into a team and say, Today you're all going to train on you know this and do this and do this, because we just don't have that, that information. And secondly, And I think this is probably the most important point, if you're working particularly with a team of of sportswomen, they're not all going to be in the same phase at the same time. So if you're trying to, you know, really implement phase-based training how are you going to do that? You're going to need a team of coaches working almost on an individual basis, you know, and it'd be really difficult for your team to train together. So I think, you know, we, we've certainly got this mm. idea between, um you know, research and practice and, and so on. And actually, I'm, I'm going to come back because I, I had one more point that I was going to make to you earlier. So I said that, you know, when we think about what do we know about hormones and performance, I said, well, there might be those indirect effects. There might be the research effects that I've, I've just described here. But I think the other area is around... The lived experiences and um, so I'm talking really here about you know the applied setting what people are doing in practice and I think we can we can look and, and learn about the potential effects of menstrual cycle phase and performance by talking to the athlete mm-hmm. <laughs> about sort of tracking you know their um, menstrual cycles tracking their performance across those menstrual cycles and then looking you know to try and identify patterns so if your athlete is affected when was she affected? So I think, you know, they would be sort of the, I guess, the holy trinity for me of, of, of the way to approach this is to look at the indirect sort of side effects, to look at the sort of research effects for a particular hormone concentration affects a particular aspect of physiology and performance. And then thirdly, to, you know, look at the lived experience of athletes and then try and make any sort of small nuanced tweaks or adjustments to training or performance based on, you know, their experience, their individual experiences. And so that's sort of, I guess, the, the three things that would be most
0: What aspects of performance are we talking about that you had looked at in all of those studies, or that you would get women if they're tracking that they need to be considering? Like, is it loss of strength? Is it fatigue? What? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean,
1: of course, it's um, gosh, when you start to talk about performance and determinants of performance, oh my goodness, you can have quite a, a long list. So here for this particular, the, the systematic review and meta-analysis that I, I just described that, that we did together, um, we just looked at, I said just like that, but we tr- we looked at a number of sort of um, components, but they mostly related to either and um, sort of muscle um, performance or sort of then endurance performance, although we did look at, did look at a subset of the more sort of, um, you know, anaerobic and then aerobic as, a, as another set. But, you know, I think each... Each person is really interested in, in, I guess, they have their own slice of the pie, right? And um, So for me, my sort of background, my, my PhD was in muscle function. Um, I work a lot with, with some colleagues on sort of bone health and, and metabolism. So I'm really interested in, in musculoskeletal, whereas, of course, the next researcher is interested in endurance performance. So, And, and some aspects, you know, although we're talking here about exercise performance, you know, not there aren't a huge amount of studies which have actually got a a, a very, I would say, clean, and discrete performance um, measure. So, and again, that that would be quite a subjective term. So what I mean is, for somebody, it's do they win an Olympic gold in their event? That's performance for them. Or it could be a time trial performance. Or, you know, it's just, it's so wide in, in a way. So I think, you know, what you have to do is, Look for some reviews like like ours, and and try and get a global picture. But then really try and do a deep dive into the area that you're most interested in. So for me, it would be musculoskeletal. For others, it would be endurance. And um, for some, it would be anaerobic performance. I think you know it's it's really like a big box of chocolates, <laughs> and I sort of want to eat them all because I love chocolate. Um, but, you know, from a research perspective, I, I really should just probably one or two and concentrate on, on the taste of those. Um, gosh, I've gone off on a very strange analogy, but um, I guess in a, a very poor answer to your question is that performance is such a, I guess, subjective and a highly variable term. And um, I think we, we just need to maybe look at one slice of the pie that really influences our, our practice. But the yeah, I do feel for yeah, some some coaches of team events in particular, where you might have some aspects of anaerobic power or strength, or yeah, in your oh my goodness.
0: yeah, good for them. <laughs> yeah, way too hard. Um, yeah. with the um paper that you're talking about, the systematic um, review and meta-analysis, were was that elite level athletes? What population was that?
1: no. so so this is um. This is um I guess a, a trawl of previous research on um sort of women, you know. So there's a real mixed bag here. So some will have gone for you know um sort of recreationally active. There'd be, you know, some upper end, I would say, athletes included within this, but you know, it's a, it's hard to do this type of research. but B, it's almost impossible to get elite athletes to do this type of research, as as you might expect, they're they're busy with you know other other aspects and they have other priorities, and um you know so it it's always a difficult one right to try and you know research on I guess an active population and then draw the parallels to the elites. It's it's not ideal, but I think you know in this space I think we just need to get. Exercisers and above, you know, so I think that's that's super important. Which Um, is
0: majority of the population anyway, so it is the population I think that we really need to focus on too, at least, I mean, that's me also being biased as a clinician because those are the people generally that I see as well. But it's true because
1: we really, you know, outside of this piece, you know, it's not just all about getting women to win gold medals at the olympics actually what we really want to do here is much bigger we want to um encourage women to exercise and we want to keep them in you know exercising so of course you know the, the statistics about sort of adolescent teenage girls you know who, who were active in sport and exercise then suddenly dropping out and you know what we want to do is, is just make sport and exercise and physical activity accessible to all women, you know, of all ages, and just to make sure that something, for example, like the menstrual cycle doesn't become, you know, the thing that's off-putting to them that takes them out of sport, exercise or physical activity. So I think if, you know, we understand um the potential effects of of these things on, you know, physical activity, sport or or exercise performance, then we can, again, try and guide, whether it's young girls or postmenopausal women or, you know, whoever it might be, you know, as I say, the elite Olympian at at the very end of the spectrum. We just, as I say, it's about getting women to achieve their, I guess, sporting or exercise potential on any given day of the cycle.
0: Were you surprised by that finding? of like a trivial effect or and not really honestly for me no because um my research
1: previously had been very much on on sort of muscle function and reproductive hormone profile and um, certainly in the for example in my in my phd i did a series of, of studies and in those studies i you know the data never showed an effect of these hormones on on muscle function um so no I I wasn't surprised and you know and it's hard you you shouldn't bring your bias into something like this so you know it's the I think for me it's, it's I had that eureka moment where I realized that it's very difficult to tease out the and potential effect of a hormone on a particular aspect of performance and that direct sort of influence and effect away from the sort of, as I say, those indirect, more sort of perceived and uh, symptomatic um, side effect effects. And so I don't know how you clean the a lab environment that do you ever really drill down between one and the other. Um, and by the time you do that, you probably have a study that isn't applicable to humans anyway or in, in a sporting environment. So you lose what we call that ecological validity. So it's a sort of fine balancing act between, you know, we want to answer a specific question, but how do we make that information still applicable to a real woman? And, and so it's it's you know fraught with difficulties. But no, I I I have to admit, if you if you'd asked me just privately to predict a direction or a would there be an effect, I would have gone for no, I don't think we're going to see a consistent sort of you know, influence of one particular hormonal profile on, you know, a particular aspect of, of the performance. Um, but of course, the next person you get on, ask them that question, and they'll be absolutely confident <laughs> the performance is affected in a particular phase As I say, we come with our own biases and our experiences, either in the lab of, of what our data has showed, or of course, I've been reading papers in this area for 20 years. So that would be, you know, as I say, really super honestly, if, if you're asking me, I'm not particularly surprised by that, and i say for a number of reasons.
0: Yeah, look, I am. But l- like you said, the hormonal <laughs> profile of women is very different. The symptoms that they have within that time can be really individual. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, I guess just over the last couple of years, I've heard more of the side of okay, we do need to consider the menstrual cycle when training women because um you know there's uh, all these changes that happen within the cycle, and they really you know they'll have more. Uh, capacity to perform better, again, even recreationally in the gym, if they concentrate on lifting heavier loads at this part of the cycle, rather than this part, because they're getting ready to shed. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, I didn't look into it enough. And so reading the studies and then talking to you, I was like, oh, okay. And like, exactly like you said, that, that information about, um, needing to consider that is becoming greater which is informative, but then it can scare people off of being active, which is exactly what we want to do.
1: I think that's that's an important sort of message that I'm really keen to, to put out there is, you know, that we we want our female athletes to feel valued and that we have considered them and their hormonal profiles, which is absolutely right that we should do. But that mustn't become then something that's really off putting. So you know, I guess one of my pet hates is, you know, when when sort of a soundbite goes out into the sort of, you know, social media or sort of public arena it says, you know, in this phase of the menstrual cycle, this is going to happen. And, you know, athletes, for example, will go, oh, holy cow, it's like the placebo effect, isn't it? It's like, oh, this tells me I'm going to be weaker here or demotivated or fatigued. you know it's like a a self-fulfilling prophecy and you know we mustn't do any harm with our research either and we mustn't plant these sort of seeds in in people's minds so i guess it's all you know i I become now like a broken record the the main take-home point is some athletes are affected and some are not so the ones that are not you know we mustn't negatively influence them put that in in their heads when, when when they're clearly not affected the ones who are affected, I think, you know, whilst research is is great and it informs and it underpins what we do in practice, it's a marriage, right? It's only one person in the marriage. The other side of the, you know, the other person in the marriage is the lived experiences. So again, we might get to a point where there's, you know, a huge amount of data and it's really high quality, but then that athlete still doesn't respond to exactly how the research said. So I think we must leave ourselves some, some leeway between, you know, the non-responders, or the outliers are, oh my god let's look at people like individuals so I think you know I'm not talking myself out of the job as a researcher I think they should complement each other but I think we should be able to dial up and dial down the sort of you know the balance between what research is telling us versus what we're seeing by the person in front of us and I think you know they should complement they should balance we can turn them up and down I don't think we live or die by one or the other I think I think that we need both so yeah so I think that Certainly, as I say, the area that I've been looking at, you know, so these studies, for example, we looked at a particular outcome of of exercise performance. But here, we weren't asking these um, participants, how did you feel that day? So as I say, we can't tease out, was it how they sort of felt or a side effect versus that sort of direct physiological relationship? Um, So I think that moving forward, we should maybe try and do that even in a lab-based study whilst we're looking at a hormone concentration and an outcome we must remember to say to the individual how do you feel today compared to yesterday <laughs> so getting that sort of area or of course choosing outcomes that aren't influenced by perception so maybe um, more sort of you know things that we can can control um, a little bit better. So yes, I think, like you said, it's really important that we put out the, the right messages that, you know, athletes will respond differently. And of course, we're talking today about those with the menstrual cycle, but they only represent one portion of our sort of, you know, sports women. Of course, there'll be others on oral contraceptives or different types of hormonal contraceptives. There'll be those with menstrual irregularities. So I think, you know, if nothing else, if I've overwhelmed you with, you know, really specific details today, if nothing else, the take-home message should be, not all athletes are affected, and those who are, we you know we need to to sort of listen to them right now because the research evidence isn't sufficient to direct them. And again, I'm only talking about sort of exercise performance. As I say, the next person could come in and look at the response to training, and that sort of area of sports science might react differently or the the data might say something differently. So again, I'm just making sure that you know sort of the listeners understand that again, this is just one piece of the pie and that there are other pieces and and other areas of sports science or other aspects of sort of training maybe, you know, may react differently. Mm.
0: Look, you um briefly mentioned it and I know that we don't have time to get into it really deep, but how does oral contraceptives change this? story
1: <laughs> it's a great question so um yes so oral contraceptives are just one type of hormone contracept- contraception um, and what i'm going to describe to you now is actually only one type of oral contraceptive so i'm talking about the combined monophasic um, oral contraceptive i think it's quite common in australia as, as well as it's, it's the most prevalent type in the uk and so I guess really briefly to say that if your athlete takes this monophasic combined or contraceptive pill, it down-regulates, so it basically pushes down um, estrogen and progesterone so they don't rise and fall like they do during the menstrual cycle. They're pretty much, and again, I'm, I'm slightly oversimplifying here just for the purposes of time, but it's almost like looking the diagram that you're going into, Laurie, if you look at that, it's just really two flat lines. So estrogen and progesterone, they, they go low, um, so that's... When you see at the start of the cycle, so during the menstrual cycle, during the period, I said estrogen and progesterone are low. So in an oral concept of user, their estrogen and progesterone is pretty much that level throughout the 28 days. and um, Sometimes rise slightly during the um, pill-free days. So again, this monophasic combined pill, we usually have 21 pill-taking days and seven pill-free days, or they could be seven placebo pill days. Um, so during those seven days, the concentration might rise sort of slightly, but essentially, if you were to step back and look at the big picture of an oral contraceptive user, they would have what we call this chronic downregulation of estrogen and progesterone. So this long-term blunting of estrogen and progesterone. There's a part B to that, because of course, we always like to complicate things further, but for the 21 pill-taking days, Whilst the sort of endogenous or the natural estrogen and progesterone levels are low, of course, when you put the pill into your mouth and into your system, you get this um, spike, this daily spike over 21 days of the synthetic estrogen and progestin that's in the pill. So you have almost two, um, I guess. uh, synergistic or simultaneous profile. So your endogenous, your natural estrogen and progesterone levels are low, but for the 21 pill-taking days, you're getting this sort of spike in the synthetic estrogen and progesterone that's contained within the pill. So really for an oral contraceptive user, if you were to look at their performance, you would have to consider, if you saw an effect, you'd have to consider, well, is it as a result of the low endogenous natural estrogen and progesterone, or is it as a consequence of the sort of daily peak in, in synthetic ones? So that's very interesting again and then you can do a whole other show on, on, on that one but yeah again you know we, we did a sister we're going to call it meta analysis on the effects of oral contraceptives on um, exercise performance so the one that we're talking about today on menstrual cycle it has a sort of identical twin sister that looked at oral contraceptives instead so you can go and check that one out too if you wanted to, to look at them but again it's just i guess another take-home messages is, is that you know when we talk about sports women We can't use that as a global term. It would be a sportswoman with a human cycle, a sportswoman with a mental irregularity, a sportswoman with an oral contraceptive use, or whatever it might be. So there's, you know, a lot of diversity. So we can't just do sex differences. Here are, you know, sportsmen and here are sportswomen. We have to go, well, here are sportsmen and here is this type of sportswoman, that type of sportswoman and that type of sportswoman.
0: Oh, I'm so glad we have somebody like you entrenched in this research doing all of it. Um, If people want to, um, I will put the link to where your bio is, because I know you've got a list of kind of lots of research articles, book chapters, everything where people can find you and your work. Is there any other good places for people to find you other than on Twitter as well? (laughs) And um, No, so if, if you link to my sort of academic profile and my, my Twitter profile, um, that would be cool.
1: And also just to point out, the two papers that I've just mentioned, the, the systematic reviews and meta-analysis, they're both um, open access, so they're free for anybody to access. Um, so, you know, it's absolutely fine, Laurie, if you link um, to the journal website because they're free for everybody, so they can just click on the link and read the paper.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Oh, my goodness. Seriously, I could talk for hours um, and just listen to you for hours about all of this. Um, Is there anything else that you want to add? Oh, no. It's...
1: (laughs) it's just you know it's it's I'm just going to repeat myself and say it, that it's great that you know I guess we've turned our attention to, to female athletes I think that's a, a super positive I think that you know realistically we need to tread carefully um, and just be considered in, in what we put out there um, because really our end goal is to encourage women to you know participate in physical activity exercise and, and sport and then you know at the more elite level is just to make sure that our sports women can sort of train and compete to their full potential so no, that's that's it for me.
0: <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. She was absolutely fantastic. Please subscribe so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. We have lots in store this year. Please share this and any episode you enjoy on social media so more people can find it. You can also consider pledging to support the podcast at podbean.com and get access to some patron-only episodes there. Take care, everyone.